All Things Conceivable, a surrogacy podcast with Nazca Fontes. Listeners, welcome to another episode of All Things Conceivable, a surrogacy podcast. This week is National Infertility Awareness Week, and we're hoping that we can help shed some light and awareness on something that affects one in eight couples across the country. Many of our families who come to us have experienced long and challenging fertility journeys before they ever meet their baby. And for those of you who are experiencing infertility, know we're with you. We're so thankful to be able to bring hope and help to people so that they may fulfill their dream of building their families. Today we have esteemed New York reproductive endocrinologist and fertility expert, Dr. Joshua Stewart. Dr. Stewart, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Likewise. Oh, we've got a lot to cover this week. So why don't I dive in and why don't you just um, help get our listeners acquainted by telling us a little bit more about you and your practice? Of course. Uh, Well, thank you. Like I said, thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. I'm a uh, reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist in New York City. So um, I have general background training in obstetrics and gynecology, but primarily focus on uh, fertility medicine, and I see the broad range of, uh, of fertility patients. So, all the way from infertility to uh, a large portion of my patients are patients that are trying to conceive with donor egg, donor sperm, and gestational carriers, and everything in between. Well, you know, you you are very interesting to to me and to the listeners once they hear a little bit more about your story. And of course, one of National Infertility Awareness Week's messages is that we can all be part of the conversation. And so for you in particular, you actually went through your own journey to have a family that was a little bit less than conventional. It uh, involved the uh, collaboration with a gestational carrier or a surrogate, as we know her to be called. So would you like to share a little bit more about your experience with surrogacy? I would love to. Um, thank you very much. I think, um, you know, certainly there's always, uh, uh, it's a unique experience to have both personal and professional experience with different treatment options and, and courses of treatment. Um, so I would love to share a little bit about uh, my own pathway. So uh, my husband and I started uh, trying to uh, build our family about four years ago. Um, and uh, one thing that uh, sort of my patients, I always tell my patients is that I'm an optimist, so I'm always glass half full. So hopefully that will come through in uh, what I'm saying today. But I think it's important, uh, I was thinking about this in anticipation of, of speaking today. It's important to sort of note that often, you know, the stories that we tell are that uh, everything has worked out perfectly and we're at the end of the road. And, you know, I have to share today that uh, we still don't have a baby, um, which is uh has been difficult, but I want to try to uh, use that as encouragement to people to keep going um, and that there is light at the end of the tunnel um, and it is worthwhile to keep going and to be persistent. So um, as we start, as I said, we started about four years ago and when we came into this, you know, uh, we always, we still joke about it today is that, you know, we came into this as two guys and so there were, you know, certain things uh, that we, uh, you know, either anatomy or eggs Uh, that we couldn't bring to the table. And so we thought it was going to be a little bit about just logistics and sort of bringing those pieces together and it would be smooth sailing. And on top of that, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist. And so we thought that it would just be smooth sailing ahead. Um, And, you know, I wish I could tell you that it wasn't, but it really was sort of one obstacle after the next. Uh, And it was 
Um, some of them were medical issues and some of them uh, were totally unforeseen and some of them were you know logistical issues. Uh, one of them uh, was a combination of both which was that uh, a lot of this overlapped with the COVID pandemic which is something that has right. affected a lot of right. our patients and so um, uh, that's sort of the brief overview. Um, to tell you a little bit more you know um, we uh, had matched with a, with a gestational carrier uh, that we really just uh, meshed with so well, and we felt so comfortable with her and her family. And I think one of the big things that I'd like to convey that I think is so important about the gestational care process is really the fit between the intended parent or parents and the gestational carrier, because it's all about trust. Uh, we go through a rigorous process of medically screening uh, gestational carriers and the eggs and the sperm and the embryos to make sure that everything is safe for the gestational carrier and the intended parents and the hopefully eventual happy healthy baby. Um, there's also this really important part of finding a great fit uh, because that helps build a relationship of trust between everybody that's involved. And we found that and we were so excited and so happy um, and unfortunately moved forward with uh, an embryo transfer of a genetically tested normal embryo that didn't work, and then subsequently had uh, some some difficulties getting back to uh, being able to do another embryo transfer. And um, that obviously uh, was very disappointing. Uh, and on top of that was really painful when we made the decision to switch to using a different gestational carrier, uh, mm. as we had really built a relationship uh, with this person. We felt very comfortable with her. Uh, it was also very disappointing to her because she obviously uh, wanted to help us um, build our family. Uh, and so, uh, but we did, we made the, the decision um, together to, to move uh, to a different carrier um, and had, had real difficulties in, in sort of getting back to that fit again. And, uh, and being able to um, find somebody that met all the medical criteria as well as sort of just finding the right fit with someone. Um, I'm pleased and very happy to report that we've gotten back there again. Um, and concurrently, uh, a lot of the uh, things changed. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I live in New York City, and so a lot of the things with the New York State uh, Family Building Act law changed. And so we were able to um, find a carrier that, that lives in the New York area, which was very convenient for us because we really want to be involved with the process and be able to support the gestational carrier um, throughout the process, you know, by uh, partially by being there in person for some of the visits and things. So I think that kind of the takeaways on this was that um, it's okay if it doesn't work out quite as smoothly as you think it will be. and. I want to also encourage people that sometimes it does work out really, really smoothly. I have friends and patients uh, that have, have gone through the process, and it really is smooth sailing. It's sort of we create a to-do list, you check it off, and, and it's all, you know, it's full steam ahead. So that is possible. But if it doesn't, uh, it's okay, and uh, it will work out, and it's important to stay persistent, um, and it's really important to have a very important team of support behind you both medical professionals uh, and the agency for the gestational carrier, uh, as well as you know your, your personal support system as well. Well, you just hit 
on so many important topics, uh, you know, and if I could just unpack them a little bit one by one. But I think, you know, at the top of the list is that you now have such a unique perspective, not only from, you know, your medical point of view and the advantage as a, as a medical professional involved in assisted reproductive technology. So you get that part. But what is often missed, I think, by many clinicians is a much deeper understanding of what happens after a match, what happens after embryo transfer, and all of the intricacies and complexities associated with surrogacy. And so I, I, I might um, maybe speak for you by saying, I think now you could look at this through a much more empathetic lens uh, when it comes to your patients who need to pursue a surrogacy journey. You know, there, the, again, there's so many complex complexities above and beyond the medical components uh, surrounding surrogacy. So I love that you have a unique perspective, and I also love that you've been able to articulate so clearly for our listeners that it's not necessarily a linear path, that it can be circuitous and there can be setbacks, but that perseverance and persistence are key. Right, they really are, and you know when we think about uh, you know this week being resolves infertility awareness week. One of the the week's missions is to unite the millions of Americans who want to remove the stigmas and the barriers, um, and perhaps some of those complexities that stand in the way. So, you know, you said it in your own personal story, but if you were to speak to the audience in particular about infertility and its effects on individuals and couples, what would you say to them about you know? Uh, kind of, again, that perseverance, and what do you want them to know in terms of how they can keep going? Absolutely. So to echo what you said before, I I think that it has uh, certainly given me new perspective as a clinician, and I think that one of those things sort of goes to your question, which is that uh, it's made me much more sensitive to timelines. Mm I, um, you know, I I remember, I'll never forget getting the first call after that embryo transfer did not work. And I knew all of the statistics from being a doctor. I knew what pregnancy rates should be and with a genetically tested normal embryo and a gestational carrier. And so obviously there was some disappointment there, but I think as the sort of dust settled, what really became apparent that became very painful also was the timeline. Um, my husband and I, you know, like so uh, many couples that are using third-party reproduction with donor egg, donor sperm, or gestational carriers, realize that it's going to be a process. And so you realize that there's a certain timeline. And when we first started, we were sort of, we thought we were sort of being ahead of the game and getting things started, you know, before we were really ready to even have a baby. Um, and I think that that was one thing that, that really caught me off guard and catches a lot of patients off guard is the timeline. Um, and so that's the first thing is that I would encourage, you know, people... Uh, individuals or couples that are, are utilizing third-party reproduction for their family building to really maybe start and getting some information uh, before you think you really might actually be ready, um, because uh, at least ready to have a baby, because uh, it never hurts to get more information. Um, and there are some building blocks that you can put in place that really set yourself up uh, to be prepared for those timelines. And similarly, um, as, uh, as you probably know with so much experience uh, in the field of gestational care is that sometimes patients um, that get to the stage of using a gestational carrier uh, have been at this already for a very long time. And so they're already very aware of uh, how one month can turn into two to three to six. Um, and so I think the first thing is the timeline. And I think the nice thing about that is that there's an action point. Um, if I could sort of encourage anybody that's listening to this at home 
that is, you know, sort of just starting out about sort of debating whether or not to make that appointment with a fertility specialist and, you know, to get testing and find out more information. I understand there's a lot of anxiety uh, that, that revolves around that because sort of, uh, sort of, yeah, you can't be scared of what you don't know necessarily. Uh, and so sort of there's this anticipation of finding out bad news or things like that. But I would encourage people that it's the exact opposite, that um, it may sound cheesy, but the, inf- the information really can empower you. And, you know, seeking out, uh, you know, where you stand with your fertility status, getting a basic evaluation with a fertility specialist and sort of mapping out a course uh, can be really a very, very critical first step and can set up that timeline so that uh, you're not also, uh, you know, uh, fighting against that as well. So, you know, you presume, you know, we presume, I think, being in this field and and living it day to day, but I guess we presume that everybody knows how infertility is defined. And so your message to those who are just listening at home and thinking about starting the process, they're a little bit confused, they're a little bit scared, um, they don't know really where to begin. Why don't we actually just start by telling our listeners what the clinical definition of infertility is and the current numbers associated with it so that they don't feel so alone? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the important thing to do is that uh, to sort of look at that the fertility landscape is is really evolving, uh, and it's evolving because uh, families are evolving, and what a family looks like is evolving. Uh, and so, sort of some of the I always caution patients that you know there's uh, there's a couple of seats that sit across from my desk, and there's lots of different uh, individuals and couples that fill those seats, uh, and it doesn't look like probably what it looked like 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, and it probably looks very different in New York City than it looks uh, at other parts of the country as well. But, you know, uh, infertility was traditionally uh, defined um, in heterosexual couples based on uh, the age of the female partner and the length of time that you've been trying to conceive. Uh, so if you were less than 35, if you had been trying uh, for 12 months, or if you're older than 35, uh, trying for six months, then that sort of was the sort of basic traditional definition of infertility. Now, as you might imagine, uh, that definition is not applicable to uh, a large proportion of patients that sit in my office uh, and that seek fertility care. And similarly, even for certain uh, couples, those definitions may not be applicable because, for instance, if a woman doesn't have regular menstrual cycles, um, then it really may not be appropriate to wait six to 12 months to see before seeing a fertility specialist. Or if you've had uh, particular procedures where let's say uh, one or both of the fallopian tubes or ovaries have been removed, then it might be advisable to see someone sooner and uh, be evaluated sooner. And then obviously um, uh, couples or individuals that are trying to build their family um, through uh, using donor egg donor sperm or or, uh, gestational cares may not meet um, traditionally defined infertility criteria, uh, but still may seek the services of a a reproductive endocrinologist or fertility specialist like myself. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Even asking the question now, you know, after, you know, nearly 30 years of work in this field, that used to just be kind of part and parcel, uh, uh, part of the conversation. It was quote unquote infertility. And now it really has migrated to 
fertility treatment because uh, I love that analogy that you just mentioned about, you know, the two chairs across from your desk and so many different individuals sit in those chairs and have these very deep conversations with you about how they're going to build their family. And it has changed so much in the last couple of decades. It really is remarkable. So I, I happen to agree. It's no longer infertility. I think it's just simply fertility treatment and fertility awareness because we all come in different shapes and sizes and have different approaches to how we're going to build our family. Um, so I also want to ask you a little bit, you know, we might be getting a little bit technical, but I, I can guarantee you there's going to be some of our listeners who really gravitate towards this. You've done a lot of research on male factor infertility. Is that right? That is correct. And if yeah. so, yeah. How about if you share, you know, in a high level summary, some of your findings? Yeah. Sure. So I think that's one thing, too. Um, you know, we talk about uh, misconceptions around fertility and the fertility evaluation. I think that there, um, in certain couples, there's this misconception that uh, it's really just the female partner that needs to undergo testing. Um, and the truth is that um, uh, major abnormalities on the male side, on the sperm side, are rare. Uh, but mild abnormalities are very common. Uh, and a lot of times there are really effective not necessarily super invasive uh, things that we can do to try to help optimize those mild abnormalities to really help improve pregnancy rates. Um, and so a lot of our, uh, my research has uh, centered around uh, trying to find different ways uh, of uh, quantifying and qualifying uh, the sperm. So usually the basic evaluation on the male side starts out with a semen analysis. And so that semen analysis gives us some basic information about the sperm. And so the basic parameters are the concentration, the motility, which is the percentage of the sperm that are swimming, and the morphology, which is the shape of the sperm. And that gives us some information. And for a very long time, historically, we've thought that was sort of all the information that we really needed about assessing the sperm. And now we're really finding out a lot of really exciting diagnostic possibilities uh, that can further uh, advance our understanding of sperm quality and how that may tailor uh, specific treatments uh, to certain individuals or couples um, and help us understand what's going on at a basic uh, biological level. So um, some of the uh, research that I did during my fellowship uh, centered around uh, some very technical uh, basic science things looking at uh, what are called exosomes, which are these little packages of information that are transmitted uh, in our bodies that transmit uh, DNA and RNA and proteins and basically uh, chemical signals uh, to help communicate amongst the different cells in our body. And so we were looking at seeing if that those um, communication pathways were different in guys that had normal semen analysis parameters versus guys that had something called azospermia, which mm -hmm. is where there's no mm -hmm. sperm in the ejaculate. Uh, and so we were looking at some of the different packaging of those things. We're hoping that eventually research like this will lead to uh, additional advanced diagnostic testing for guys with male factor infertility. And one of those that we're using clinically right now uh, is looking at something called uh, DNA fragmentation. Um, and so it's specialized testing on the sperm to see if an increased amount of the sperm carry fragmented DNA, which may decrease fertilization rates, pregnancy rates, or increase the amount of abnormal embryos that are created through artificial reproductive technologies or through uh, conceiving. 
So you've hit upon a lot of advances in, in male factor and a little bit on other fertility treatments. Outside of the male factor realm, what else are you seeing that's exciting uh, coming down the line in terms of advancements in the field? Oh, man, uh, we could do a whole separate podcast on that, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm opening so, Pandora's box no, here. No, no, you're great. I think, um, you know, to sort of condense a couple of things that I'm very excited about. So uh, one is uh, genetic testing. And that's a that's a broad, you know, seriously, obviously, we could have a separate podcast on genetic testing. But of course, one right. thing is um, genetic carrier screening. So uh, these are panels. Uh, it's a blood test uh, for uh, the uh, patients that... Uh, basically helps us screen for uh, genetic predisposition to certain things like cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs, thalassemia, sickle cell anemia. And the way that those work is that you need to have two abnormal copies of a gene in order to actually have the disease. So you need an abnormal copy from the egg and an abnormal copy from the sperm. And so those panels are changing all the time as our understanding of the genes that are involved change. So just for instance, in that panel, uh, that, that we were using about a year ago. There were 282 conditions that we could screen for, and now that's gone to 511 uh, diseases that we can screen for. So that's one thing. The other thing with genetic testing is that um, we are able to do genetic testing of embryos, which is abbreviated PGT, which is pre-implantation genetic testing. And we can do that for the number of chromosomes, uh, which is related to the age of the egg that was used to create the embryos. And we can also do it for certain mutations. Um, so we're seeing a lot of patients that uh, find out more about their family history and their genetic history. And so for certain cancer syndromes like BRCA or Lynch syndrome, patients are choosing to do that type of testing on the embryos uh, to ensure that uh, the pregnancy does not carry that same mutation. So I think these are really exciting technologies. Uh, they needed to be interpreted in the right context. Uh, we won't get off on topic today, but there's lots of things in uh, sort of mainstream news about uh, the efficacy of these different treat, uh, testing modalities. And so obviously they need to be conducted, you know, in the context of very good counseling with a genetic counselor or uh, a certified physician, but in the right context can be really, really powerful for helping uh, patients build healthier families. A terrific summary, truly, of the scientific advancements, uh, you know, available for folks who need to pursue treatment in a clinical setting. So pivoting just a little bit from the technological and scientific advancements to some of the cultural advancements that we've made in this field, and I think with the advent of same-sex marriage in particular and the normalization of gay men having children via surrogacy, it's made a great impact on increasing the awareness and the use of surrogacy in general. So what was once fringe or unspoken truly is now on the table for everyone, and, you know, the way it should be. Um, so, you know, and I, and I do understand that a, a current area of interest for you is the LGBTQ reproductive service um, aspect of this. So do you want to, you know, expand a little bit and tell me more about that and, and uh, let our listeners hear how you're involved? Absolutely, um, and thank you for the opportunity to speak about this. I think that um, it really starts with awareness, um, and uh, from my perspective, you know, it starts on uh, sort of patient education, sort of understanding what your reproductive options are, um, and having access to those things. So, understanding, uh, you know, what the uh, what the route forward of of conceiving with donor sperm and intrauterine insemination is 
and what's involved with matching with uh, an egg donor. Um, and having resources or access to gestational carrier agencies uh, that are able to provide the right fit uh, for intended parents and gestational carers. So the awareness of the resources that are available um, and seeking uh, information from um, you know, uh, certified medical professionals to help guide that process, I think that we've really seen um, just a, a much broader acceptance of, uh, of utilizing uh, these services and the different ways that a family can develop. And I think that that's been really, really powerful. There are things uh, that, uh, you know, people have spent a lot of time and effort for advocating for. And, you know, I can speak to that sort of in New York State uh, where I live, which is that uh, the gestational carrier law um, changed last year. So previously, you could not have a compensated carrier uh, in New York State. Um, so, uh, and that changed uh, recently, and that has made a profound impact on so many people's uh, family building uh, uh, outlook. You know, uh, I'm a, a perfect example of that. You know, um, there was a time where, um, you know, there really weren't a whole lot of options to have gestational carriers uh, in, in this local area. And so many uh, of my, you know, very, very close friends uh, went to, you know, their, their gestational carrier lived in California and uh, they were sort of scrambling right before delivery to try to, you know, rearrange work schedules and book flights and try to make it in time to be there for the, the delivery <laughs> right. of their child. And, yep, you know, yep. there's, enough, there's enough stress in life and in this process. And so I think, with, you know, these, the landscape uh, of fertility and family building is really changing and evolving. And all of our, I think, perspectives uh, as a society and as a community are also uh, uh, moving forward and uh, really spreading uh, the access uh, to these services. Agreed. I, I would say that, you know, there's been this momentum towards normalizing not only you know, third-party reproduction, but surrogacy in particular. You know, I started out just doing egg donation here at Conceivabilities, eventually, you know, moving into the world of surrogacy and just the arc uh, you know, the, uh, the arc of progression of acceptance in my 26 years of, of doing this, um, you know, specifically ART. So it, it really is remarkable to see the changes taking place. And, you know, they're all shored up by good practices, uh, legal protections, and uh, a lot of ancillary professionals really coming into their own in terms of their own understanding how best support these families. Uh, moving through a surrogacy journey. So a lot of advancements have been taking place, no doubt. Um, so Conceivabilities this year is celebrating a quarter century of building families. And you know we just could not be prouder and more excited about bringing our own experience to bear into the future. And so as I was reflecting on lessons that I've learned over the course of time that I bring, I, I hope, with me every day in supporting our families, one of them truly is that uh, modern family building is evolving and surrogacy is leading the way. Naturally, I look at this through a little bit of a, a biased lens, right? I, I do believe that surrogacy is leading the way. So how specifically would you see third-party reproduction evolving um, and how will surrogacy continue to grow, especially for people facing fertility challenges? Absolutely. Well, congrats on 25 years. Uh, and uh, that's uh, really incredible. And, and um, hats off to uh, the amazing work that you guys do. 
I think Thank that, you. Um, I think that we will continue to see uh, the utilization of um, gestational carriers for um, family building increase. I think that um, it's not just uh, acceptance on sort of a larger scale uh, across you know, society and communities, but it's also um, uh, acceptance and awareness on an individual level. Uh, and I think we could look at that from both the perspective of the gestational carrier and the intended parents. So on the side of the gestational carriers, I think that, um, you know, uh, if there are a lot of people that I think uh, are, have a lot of interest in, in uh, doing this wonderful, amazing thing uh, of helping an individual or families that otherwise would not be able to, to, uh, you know, build their family through gestational carrier. Uh, being a gestational carrier. And I think that uh, the more information uh, and awareness that is out there for people that would be interested in being gestational carriers uh, and helping to reassure them that uh, this is a, a, can be a very safe process, that it is uh, highly regulated and that we have uh, very um, stringent requirements for screening uh, the eggs and sperm that become embryos that will be transferred to the gestational carrier and that it can be extremely effective and success rates are very, very high. Um, I think that the more information that we put out of there as a community really spreads uh, uh, the um, acceptance uh, amongst gestational, potential gestational carriers that this would be something that they would be interested in doing uh, and that it can be a safe, very effective process. And on the side of the intended parents, I think that more and more patients are sitting in my office and they have uh, heard about gestational surrogacy through a friend or a relative or a coworker. Um, and, um, you know, that um, is not something that I think probably would be as common as it was, you know, five or 10 years ago. You could probably comment on this, but I think that more and more uh, people have either uh, read a news story or have had somebody on a local level that has undergone the process. And I think that that on a individual level helps normalize it for them too, that they can get through this, uh, that it can be safe and successful. And I think that that provides a lot of reassurance and confidence uh, to a lot of our uh, intended parents and the gestational carriers as well. Yeah, I think that the gestational carriers are, you know, they're remarkable women, no doubt. And, you know, to hear uh, time and again from respected clinicians in the field that this, you know, is a very safe process. They've already given birth themselves and have had uncomplicated pregnancies and obstetrical histories that allow them to continue uh, with the prospect of becoming pregnant again with the intended parents' embryos. I think it's important to note, too, that they um, do have a network of, of safety and security around them with all of the professionals involved, from the doctors to the attorneys to, uh, you know, the mental health professionals, and then, you know, the more administrative parts of the process that are equally as important, you know, the escrow management and, you know, proper insurance coverage and what have you. But one thing that we did notice over the course of time when we were thinking about how could we continue to improve the process on behalf of our gestational carriers. You know, part of our value as a company, one of our core values is this value of refinement. We're always seeking to improve and create, you know, more value for the participants in a journey. And one of the things that we recently did is we rolled out what's called a fourth trimester care plan. And 
it was designed so that the the gestational carriers who go through this who give so much of themselves and at the end there's you know this joyous you know overwhelmingly uh, statistically <laughs> overwhelmingly joyous moment where they give birth and the intended parents are, are you know have that new family well you know as soon as the balloons are popped and you know uh, everybody goes home we really wanted to provide um, more care for the healing and recovery on behalf of a gestational carrier. So this fourth trimester really puts an emphasis on her physical and emotional recovery. So everything from uh, continuing with mental health uh, support to having access to pelvic floor um, physical therapy or uh, recovery with a doula service or nutrition, uh, physical activity. So knowing that this is now in place, uh, at least with a company like Conceivabilities, do you have a medical perspective on that service offering to gestational carriers? Absolutely. I think it's extremely important. I think that um, we talk about, you know, uh, I, I always say to my patients that uh, the fertility process requires all, of, we have these buckets of resources as humans, and it requires all of our resources, financial, emotional, physical, time. And I think that we have to consider all of those pieces, you know, with the gestational carrier process. And, uh, you know, it doesn't end uh, with delivery of a healthy uh, newborn. There is uh, you know, I, I think about this all the time is that, you know, uh, hopefully when we bring home our happy, healthy baby, uh, you know, I won't be physically recovering uh, from mm -hmm. a pregnancy mm -hmm. and a delivery. And that's a really huge aspect of this process for so many uh, people. And it will be a part of the process for the gestational carrier. And it's important for her to feel supported both physically, medically and emotionally uh, in that in that time period. Um, I, you know, I work in my practice, I work with intended parents and I also work with gestational carriers and I, uh, you know, I'm uh, part of screening gestational carriers and, and caring for them during their pregnancies as well. And they're my primary patient. And, uh, and on the flip side, you know, I also see the intended parents also uh, in, not together, but in different, uh, in different arrangements. And I think that it's really important to see it from both perspectives. I think that, um, uh, one of the things that I've seen be really successful um, is that uh, in situations where the intended parents uh, and the gestational carrier really communicate about what they anticipate post-delivery to sort of look like. And I think having clear expectations of sort of how much communication both parties want uh, can be really, really helpful. Um, I know that, you know, some gestational carriers, there certainly is this... Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's, um, if you articulate it sadness, but there's certainly this departure uh, that there was this very close relationship between the gestational care and the intended parents. And then after delivery, it seems like uh, on one hand, the process is over, but then there's still this physical uh, and emotional healing process that is taking place. And so I think one of the things that can be really effective is just having really open lines of communication early on in the process of what everybody anticipates that process looking like, feeling like, and sort of what's the best way for everybody for that to play out. Indeed. Well, you certainly know a lot about surrogacy. Um, and, and of course, you know, bringing your skills to bear and your level of expertise in the medical field to treat all kinds of patients. 
uh, inclusive of gestational carriers is really remarkable and unique and you know in high demand and greatly needed and certainly appreciated Dr. Stewart. So as we, we look to kind of wrap up our time together today, um, you've shared a lot. If you could share for our listeners in particular some of the most important lessons that you've learned in caring for them, uh, what would be your aha moment in terms of, you know, you really you, you found something that's truly important and valuable to the patient. What would it be? Sure. I think um, the thing that I've learned that I think that I try to share with my patients uh, is to be patient with yourself. Um, there are, uh, you know, certainly um, when you are uh, undergoing fertility treatments, when you're conceiving with donor egg, donor sperm, or uh, using a gestational carrier. If we start with just the gestational carrier process, you know, uh, there are a lot of couples or individuals that never anticipated needing to use uh, a third person for building their family. And on surface level, that may seem disappointing. Um, and even, you know, I can speak from personal experience, even, you know, in same-sex couples where you sort of always knew that there had to be a third person uh, involved <laughs> with the process, it may still, you know, when you think back to like when you were a child, it may not have even sort of been on your radar screen of sort of how you thought your family building uh, uh, process would, would play out. And so I think to be patient with yourself by that, I mean, there are going to be certain days where it seems really easy and you're okay with it. And you're like, this is what I want to do. And it seems easy to sort of stay on course. And then there are going to be other days where you wake up and you really, really want to have a baby and you really, really want to build a family and you're okay with it all, but it just doesn't feel like you have the same amount of energy to get up and do it all. Um, I was recently sharing with one of my patients that for some reason I remembered, uh, and anybody who's gone through this process can echo this, uh, there's a lot of forms that have to be filled out and a lot of them have to be notarized. And I just remember I got to a process where we were sort of like had some disappointment along the way and I just like didn't feel, there's one day where I just like didn't feel like I had the energy to like print another set of forms and take them and get them signed and notarized. Yeah, yeah. And in the context of this whole process, it's like really pretty minuscule in, in the amount of resources that that requires. But I thought, you know what? I'm just, I have to give myself a week. I just don't want to fill out any more forms. I don't want to have anything else signed. I just need a break. And that's okay. Be patient with yourself because you will come back around and you'll wake up again and you'll feel very motivated and you will get back to that place again. But be patient with yourself because there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. Uh, and in the end, it will work out. What sage advice, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, absolutely the most important uh, topic for patients who have to get back on that horse. Be patient with yourself and persevere. So what, what a wonderful way to end uh, the podcast and our interview and our conversation today. Dr. Stewart, upon reflection of your own practice, is there anything that you felt that we haven't covered today that you would really want our listeners to hear from you? I don't think so. I think we've really covered a lot of ground today, uh, and uh, we've really um, had a, a lot of opportunity to touch upon a lot of really important things that are going on in the field. Um, I would uh, just echo what we said before, which is that it's really important to have a good team behind you and to sort of pick the team that uh, makes you feel comfortable and confident and that's you know uh, really multidisciplinary uh, you know medical professionals uh, mental health professionals like you said legal financial uh, gestational care agency um, really important to pick a great team
So every time I have a physician on my show, I just leave the conversation thinking they're so bright, so insightful, so compassionate, so empathetic, so skilled at building families. And Dr. Stewart was certainly no different. And when I really reflect on the conversation and you know, trying to summarize my aha moment, because I always have an aha moment from these conversations, what struck me most about the conversation was when Dr. Stewart described for all of us what it means to sit on the other side of two chairs and how over the years the people who have filled those two chairs have shifted and changed and sometimes they're more conventional uh, like we imagine them to be and sometimes they're more uh, evolving and human and different from what we ever imagined. And for all of us who are imparted with the honor of helping support these individuals become a family, always remembering that those folks come in all shapes, sizes, motivations, uh, challenging paths, circuitous routes to building a family, and they are all deserving of that opportunity and of our compassion and understanding. So listeners, thank you for joining me today. I hope this conversation was enlightening. I hope it challenges you to um, having the perseverance that you need to set forth on the, your family building journey. It is well worth it. Until next time, take care. At Conceivabilities, we believe that everyone who wants to become a parent can. Our agency has helped build thousands of families for nearly 25 years. Whether you are an intended parent ready to fulfill your family destiny, a surrogate answering your calling, or an egg donor wanting to expand what's possible in your life, we are your people. See how matching matters. Learn more by joining our Surrogacy Learning Center community at surrogacylearningcenter.conceivabilities.com.